Turn with me to our scripture reading. It is Galatians today. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> we're reading verses uh, 13 to 15. Actually, that'll be the text. I might want to read a little bit more than that. I will read through to the end of the chapter because I'm going to reference a few verses uh, uh, later in the chapter, but I'm, the, the sermon is only verses 13 to 15. That's the text for the sermon, but I'm going to read, like I say, to the end of the chapter. So, this is the Word of God. It is everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It is without error in the original languages in which it was given. And it remains for us in faithful translations, uh, the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God. So God is speaking. Listen carefully as I read. Starting in verse 13, Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For... The whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to um, look more closely at your word and uh, be blessed by it. Lord, this is, uh, uh, we believe, uh, the preeminent means of uh, blessing from you, the, the means that you use uh, most often and most powerfully to uh, bring blessing to your people through, through the truth that is found herein. Um, would you please bless this time? Uh, would you please, Holy Spirit, grant us illumination uh, in our understanding that we might more deeply understand the things of God uh, as set forth in this passage. And would you please grant me unction, Lord, uh, that I might uh, speak your truth and speak it well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, um, Have you ever had something that was given to you that you misused? I'll give you a couple of examples of misusing something. You probably didn't do this yourself, but let's just say you did, okay, just for the sake of argument. Let's say somebody gave you, for maybe your birthday or for uh, on some other occasion, gave you a, a plastic wiffle ball. You know what a wiffle ball is? It's a ball that has holes in it, plastic ball. And a, and a wiffle ball bat, which is a plastic bat that you hit the wiffle ball with. Okay, so you can buy those at the store. 
um, and uh, you know, in the in the in the uh, toy section. And maybe you've seen it. Uh, maybe you've even played with a wiffle ball before and 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 hit it with a with a wiffle ball bat. If you buy a wiffle ball set like that, the bat is supposed to be used to hit the wiffle ball, right? But if you use that bat to hit your brother or your sister, you're misusing the bat. You see what I'm saying? It's meant to be used for one thing, um, but not for certain other things. You shouldn't ever, ever, should never hit your brother or your sister with anything, okay? Uh, not a wiffle ball bat or anything else. Um, I did that once in a while to my brother, and that was wrong. But anyway, um, uh, so that's misusing a wiffle ball. Or if you if you have a dolly, if you're a girl, and and maybe you use also wiffle ball bats, but let's say you have a dolly that has a lot of hair. Now that hair is on the dolly. You know you should whatever girls do with hairs on dollies. It usually involves combing it and brushing it and that sort of thing, right? And making her look pretty and that sort of thing. It's not meant to clean the toilet bowl with. You know that would be misusing the dolly. Okay, I'm, I know these examples are silly, but I'm getting a point across here. And that is, we should not misuse things that are designed for one thing um, for something that it shouldn't be used for. That gets to the point of this passage uh, that I want to make and that is being made by this passage and that I'm going to make in the, in the two points uh, that are coming here in just a moment. So keep that in mind. We don't want to misuse things that are given to us. And I'll tell you uh, more what that means in just a moment, all right? But first I want to give you a little background. Um, uh, as we've worked our way through Galatians, and some of you haven't been here for, for that, because usually I'm used preaching from Galatians in the evening uh, service when we have the evening service. But Paul has been talking about spiritual freedom, about freedom from uh, spiritual slavery uh, to... Uh, um, to uh, different things. He's talked about different kinds of things, but basically the Galatian believers were being taught by or influenced by false teachers who were trying to spiritually enslave uh, these professing Christians in Galatia. And I won't go into the details. But Paul is saying, you are free. Don't go back to, sl- to being enslaved again. Don't uh, embrace ideas that are enslaving, spiritually enslaving to you. He says you're spiritually free. He doesn't use quite that phrase, but he says you're free and he means spiritual freedom there. What is, what is this spiritual freedom of which the scriptures speak? Not just Paul, but Paul uh, oftentimes does speak of it. But what is the nature of that freedom? So let me just remind you of what that freedom is that we have as Christians. As born again people who are forgiven by God and have been brought into his family. We are spiritually free in that we are free from the curse of God's law. And of course, God's law, the curse of God's law, is, is, is damnation. Ultimately, it's death, uh, is what the scriptures say, and then, uh, physical death and, and then spiritual death. Um, and that is the curse of God's law. And since God is the author of that law, the law is merely a reflection of the mind and the will of God. Uh, so, the, the curse of the law on our sin is actually God's curse on our sin. But as Christians, the curse that we deserve for our sin has been given to another. And that other, of course, is Jesus, who is our substitute, who acts in our place, who takes our debt to God's justice, which is eternal punishment that we deserve, and he took that on himself and he quenched it. He absorbed it and he quenched it for the believer. And so you are free from the curse of God's law and the curse of God as a believer because you are not going to go to hell. And I'm not going to go to hell, which is what we deserve. So that's part of the freedom. But that spiritual freedom that the scriptures speak of in the New Testament is more than that. It's also freedom from not only the curse of sin and the punishment of sin, but also the power of sin. The power that sin has the, uh, to enslave and destroy us, which we're all conceived with in Adam, 
uh, through, through imputation of Adam's sin to us at the point of our conception. Every last one of us, with the exception of Jesus, of course. God did not impute Adam's sin to Jesus, but we, uh, all the rest of us, have had that sin imputed to us because of the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. He was our representative head. Um, but for the believer, uh, so, so the unbeliever is enslaved, is a thrall, I like that word, so I use it, uh, is a thrall to Satan and to his own sin. Uh, and he, most unbelievers don't realize they're enslaved, but they are. Uh, they're spiritually enslaved. Um, and, uh, and, and sin dominates their life. It, it, it informs everything they do. But for the Christian, that's not the case anymore. We are freed from sin's enslaving power, its power to destroy us, uh, as Christians. Whereas once, before we were Christians, we lacked the ability to resist temptations, the temptations of the world, of the flesh, and of the devil. We couldn't do anything about those temptations. We had to give in to them, in effect, uh, as, uh, as unbelievers, uh, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, we have the ability... We, we have the ability to resist the temptations that come our way from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because we have new hearts. We have a new principle operating within us. We are born-again Christians. We have the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Christ, who has taken up residence within us. And so we have a choice now when we're tempted. We can foolishly give in to the temptation, which we all just confessed that we did this past week, numerous times, and we do that. But we're works in progress, as I like to say. And the Lord is making progressive, sanctifying work in our hearts and making that progress. Sometimes it's very slow. Sometimes it's halting. But it is, there, overall, over time, it is progress that, uh, gr- there is a growth in Christ's likeness, even if it is very slow and imperceptible at times. So we have an ability now to resist the temptation to sin. Okay. And that's due to the spiritual freedom that is ours in Christ. So, does living, what is living a life of spiritual freedom, living that life, what does that look like? Well, scripturally, it looks a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, living a life of spiritual freedom, uh, look, it involves consistently living in a way that reflects uh, incre- I'll say consistently, fairly consistently, increasingly consistently, living in a way that reflects a deep understanding of and an appreciation for the freedoms that Christ has purchased for us through his uh, crosswork. Freedom specifically from the power and penalty of sin. And, we, and so we live increasingly with that knowledge, I am no longer hell-bound. God is no longer... Uh, going to slay me or say, all right, you're going to hell now because you messed up. Um, we're no longer, that penalty has been removed if we're genuine Christians. Even when we, even we, when we fall, and we sometimes fall significantly, seriously, uh, we know, I'm, I, I grieve over what I did, Lord, and I know that you are not saying, oh, that was, that's it, you're done, that's one too many times, off to hell you go. The Christian realizes that. That's not true, even though I deserve it. So we understand that, um, and increasingly we, we, we live as if that's the case and realize I don't have to choose this temp- to say yes to this temptation, even though it seems like I have to. That's just, that's a mirage. It's not true. And the, increasingly the Christian is going to tell him or herself that. Um, and, and live on that. So that's one aspect of living a life of spiritual freedom. Also, it involves living a life that is free from the bondage of trying to earn our acceptance from God uh, through our own efforts at being good. We are accepted by God as believers. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is perfectly acceptable to God, and God has declared us to be acceptable in his sight and pleasing in his sight in the courtroom of heaven, judicial, judicially speaking. And we as Christians who are uh, spiritually free, part of that freedom expresses itself in the knowledge that I, I don't have to earn God's favor. Now, should we try to please God? Yes. 
we should try to please God. The Bible makes it clear we, uh, we're to please the Lord and to strive to please the Lord. But that's different than gaining our acceptance from the Lord, I would argue. Um, so, the, so spiritual uh, freedom involves understanding uh, that I can't earn God's favor. It also involves it's, uh, being characterized by dependence upon the guidance and the enabling power of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, to walk by faith and to walk in obedience. Verse 16 makes reference to that. But I, but I say, walk by the Spirit, uh, and, do, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so the, the spiritual, spiritually free person, the Christian, is going to increasingly rely on the Spirit for the grace to walk in, in paths of obedience rather than paths of disobedience. And then finally, the uh, spiritual freedom involves a life that is increasingly characterized by the fruit of the Spirit that we see mentioned there in verses 22 and 23. Uh, the, as the Spirit uh, works on us more and more, these virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will uh, increasingly become part of our uh, experience uh, and the way that we uh, live rather than the deeds of the flesh that are mentioned in 19 through 21. All that's by way of introduction. That's the life of spiritual freedom, okay? That, that Paul talks about there when he says, for you were called to freedom. You were called to spiritual freedom. Um, but that brings me to the two points that I want to make. And now this is back to the points I was making to you children, okay? About misusing things, right? Wiffle ball bats and dolly hair. Um, here are, the, here are the points that I want to make in the remainder of our time together. First is this. Since God has called you to a life of spiritual freedom, since he has done that, you must not use this liberty, this freedom, as an opportunity to sin. That would be to misuse your spiritual freedom. To use that freedom as an opportunity to sin against God. And that's the reason I made that point with you children a moment ago. So, again, first point, since God has called you to a life of spiritual freedom, you must not use this liberty as an opportunity to sin. And then, secondly, we're going to see, um, also from verse 13, uh, both of these points are derived particularly from verse 13, since God has called you to a life of spiritual freedom, you must use this freedom as an opportunity to love. You must not use it as an opportunity to sin. You must use it as an opportunity to love. And we're going to unpack that in the remaining time here. So first, you must not use your spiritual freedom as an opportunity to sin. Verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brethren. And then he says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, your flesh, the flesh that Paul describes there in verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is in a believer now. He's talking about believers. Uh, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's a war going on inside of each one of us. The old man versus the new man, or the new nature. And it's there until you go to heaven. Perfectionism is a lie. There are churches, false churches, that teach that. It's a lie. Um, you can't be spiritually perfect this side of heaven. But, so, um, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. As, in other words, as a license to sin. Just because you are spiritually free in Christ, just because you're free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin, doesn't mean you get to sin with abandon because you're forgiven now. Is Paul's point. He says, don't use that wonderful freedom to dishonor God. What does it mean for a Christian to use his freedom to dishonor God, uh, to, um, to, as a license to sin. How, what does that look like when Christians use, uh, their spiritual freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, as Paul, to use Paul's wording there in verse 13? Well, this occurs when we use our knowledge, the knowledge that we have of being forgiven by God in Christ, of being, um, 
uh, adopted into God's family, of being, um, of being um, reconciled to God, we use that knowledge that we are in this situation as a pretext for indulging uh, in sinful inclinations, the, the sinful inclinations that are still present within us in the form of the old man or the old self. That's what uh, it means to use uh, freedom as license to sin. We're using, uh, it's a pretext for sinning further, in other words. When we do this, we are basically telling God that we want him to forgive us, keep forgiving us, of that which he hates, so that we might do that which he hates all the more, without fear of adverse consequences for doing so. This is one of the most despicable and treacherous things that a professing Christian can do, it seems to me. It's presumptuous sin, to quote, um, uh, well, it's several places where it, uh, I'm thinking of Psalm 119, which I'll, which I'll uh, read here in a few moments, actually. Um, but to, to sin against God, knowing and, and saying, well, you know, God will forgive me for this. So I can, I'm going to go ahead and do this because I want to. But God will forgive me. I'm a Christian. It's wicked behavior. It's the way non-Christians think. And if you find yourself thinking that way sometimes, you need to seriously question whether you're a Christian or not. Now, I'm not saying that you're automatically not a Christian, but that's the way non-Christians think. God's just, he, he, uh, he, 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 He's okay with everything I do, or he, he'll get over it. That's how non-Christians think about God. We must not think that way, but we, sad to say, do sometimes. Believers do. Why? Why do Christians use at times their spiritual freedom uh, that they have because they're Christians? Why do they use it? Why do we? I need to use the familiar as a license to sin, as an opportunity for the flesh. Why does that happen? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Because of our flesh. It's because though that flesh, those sinful inclinations of the old self that are still in us, though our flesh has in fact been, I'm going to use the word dethroned, um, I don't entirely like that word, but that's the one I'm going to use because I can't think of a better one right now. But since our, because, though our flesh has been dethroned, if we're a Christian, and subdued by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit within us, because we all have the Holy Spirit within us if we're Christians, that does not mean that the flesh has been fully eradicated from us. I've already indicated that, made that point. The flesh, the old man, call it what you will, that sin principle is still that's within us, is still capable of luring the careless believer into horrifyingly deep sin. Just think of the sins that Lot committed. Think of the sins that Samson committed. Think of the sins that David committed. Think of the sins that Solomon committed. And yes, think of the sins that New Testament saints like Peter committed. Horrible. Denied Jesus three times. I never knew you. Or never knew him. He was a believer when he said that. That's the old man gaining the upper hand temporarily. And it's in each one of us. He's in each one of us. And that same Flesh, that same old man, is more than capable of luring you and me just the way he did Peter and Paul and Thomas. We must never underestimate, and that's if we're, if we're not watchful. 
if we're not watchful. We must never underestimate the power that our the old man that lurks yet within us still has to tempt us, to deceive us, and to re-enslave us. Let him who thinks he stands stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed. This is a take heed moment. Don't kid yourself about yourself. Yes, we're new creatures in Christ. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, God can give us the grace to grow in grace and will. But don't don't ever become complacent. Don't ever become nonchalant about what's going, uh, uh, your capacity for doing wrong and for deviating from God's will and bringing dishonor to him. So we have that propensity, and we must not underestimate the ability of us to be re-enslaved by the old man, but we must also never underestimate our ability uh, to, ha- uh, to overcome the temptations that our flesh, if, I, if you will, throws our way, in addition to what the world and the devil throw our way. We mustn't underestimate the ability of ourselves, by God's grace, to be victorious, if I can put it that way. I don't like to use that word too much because it's uh, uh, abused in an awful lot of Christian circles. But there is a sense in which uh, it's true. Uh, we gain, uh, probably obedience is a better word than victory, over uh, when, when, we're, when we're being tempted from within. And we mustn't underestimate that um, positive uh, uh, truth. How, how does one overcome the temptation to use the fact that we're Christians, the fact that we are, have been reconciled to God, the fact that we are in God's family, the fact that we've been justified. How do we avoid, how do we overcome the temptation to use that as an opportunity to go, you know what, I can get away with this. I'll, I'll sin, and I'll, I'll do this, have this thought, I'll adopt this attitude, I'll do this, this behavior, um, but Jesus will forgive me for it. How do we avoid that? I would suggest three things. And I'm going to make all three from Scripture. So first, you and I need to regularly and uh, really frequently uh, purpose in our hearts uh, and pray, not just decide, but also pray, that the Lord would uh, help us not to use our position in Christ as a license to sin. So, Paul, not Paul, excuse me, David, in uh, Psalm 19, I said I was going to read this, and I am going to read it. Psalm 19, verse uh, 13. He says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. He's praying there. He's asking the Lord, Lord, please prevent me from sinning presumptuously against you. Let them, meaning presumptuous sins, not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Uh, I think uh, my understanding there is that great transgression that I'll be acquitted of is not engaging in presumptuous sin, which would otherwise be a great transgression, in other words. But presumptuous sin is, he's praying, Lord, don't let, please don't let me do that. So he, know, he realizes it's a danger. He's a, it's a danger to him. It could happen. And so he prays. We too must pray, Lord, keep me from sinning presumptuously against you. Over in Leviticus, um, no, not Leviticus, where was it? Numbers uh, 15, I think it was. I guess I probably shouldn't do this on the fly. Um, it's 16, uh, it is 15, verse 30. Uh, it says there, but the person who does anything, he just talked about unintentional sinning against God just prior to this point. And then in verse 30 he says, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. That defiantly is that knowingly, I, I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing it anyway. 
intentional sinning against God, presumptuous sinning against God. Which again, if we, we're tempted because we know, I'm a Christian. All Christians get forgiven. So, maybe I can get away with this. And we, so, we need to pray, Lord, please don't let me follow that line of thinking. Please help me catch myself when I start thinking this way. Please lovingly slap me upside the head, Lord. Secondly, uh, we can avoid uh, falling into this temptation uh, and uh, giving into this temptation to use grace as a license to sin by frequently um, and prayerfully looking to the Holy Spirit for the wisdom and strength that we need to successfully resist. Verse 16 of our passage, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Depend upon, look to the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, obey the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. One of which is to use grace as license to sin. So ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, so when you're praying, Lord, I don't want to do this. I purpose in my heart not to do this. And Holy Spirit, would you please grant me the, the, the strength that I need when I'm in, in the heat of the battle and I'm being sorely tempted to do whatever it is. And then thirdly, uh, we overcome and avoid uh, falling into this sin by solemnly and deliberately deciding not to give in to temptation when the opportunity uh, to do so is brought to our attention either by the world, flesh, or the devil. So Paul, and this this sounds a little bit like the first point I made. I think it is different, but it's similar. But I'll read the passage. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse uh, 11. And Paul had just been uh, speaking of uh, the sin of uh, uh, the love of money. Is Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and by... And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And then he says this, but flee from these things, you man of God. Make a decision to flee. Do what Joseph did. Run. Turn, turn, turn around and run, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, from whatever it is that's tempting you to Use grace as license. God's grace as a license to sin. So, purpose in your heart ahead of time. Pray for the grace and look to the Holy Spirit for the strength. And then actually run when it happens. Okay. Enough of this first point. Let's get to the second point in the remainder of our time. So the first is, since God has called you to the, a life of spiritual freedom, do not use this liberty as an opportunity to sin. Secondly, use this liberty as an opportunity to love. Use it as an opportunity to love. So he says, again, uh, in our... Let me find it. uh, Verse 13. For you were not called to freedom, brethren. Or for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But, instead, through love, serve one another. So that's that's the contrast. Don't do this. Do this. Commentator Jeffrey Thomas Wilson, uh, uh, excuse me, not Thomas, Jeffrey Wilson, uh, uh, wrote this. uh, He says this about Paul's exhortation here that's to the Galatian Christians. uh, And this is what uh, Wilson says. He says, forsaking the selfish individualism of lawless license, forsaking that, they, the Galatian Christians, are constantly to seek the welfare of one another, through that self-giving love which delights to express itself in mutual service. So forsaking the one, in other words, get your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on where can I help, how can I show love to others? Because sin is always, um, is always, uh, Wholly selfish. It's all about gratifying self in that moment. 
whether it's to lie, to cheat, to lust, to, uh, to, uh, to be angry at improper moments, improper things, whatever it is, uh, to sleep in on Sundays or, or begrudgingly go to church. It's always about self. And he's like, get your eyes off yourself. Look around for opportunities to love through service. Why? Why must we do this? Why must we love one another and use our freedom to obey God to love one another? Why must we do that? Well, two reasons. Uh, one is mentioned in verse 14, and the other is mentioned in verse 15. Okay, so verse 14 speaks of the first reason why we are to uh, love one another and use our spiritual freedom uh, toward this uh, goal. And that is because when you are loving the brethren with all that that entails, uh, you are fulfilling the whole law of God. So notice verse 14 began with the word for. For is always important. It's a logical sequence that's going on. You want to identify words like since, for, because, in your translations and go, I'm, this is, follow the logic. This is, there's logic going on here. So he says, for, after he said, through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the phrase, the whole law that the uh, New American Standard uses, perhaps your translation does that as well, that phrase, the whole law, translates a Greek construction which contrasts the whole with uh, a part, or with the part. So the whole as opposed to the part, uh, something less than the whole. And so what the whole law means, if you understand, if you look at the Greek and uh, uh, kind of unpack what the Greek is doing there, it means the spirit and intention of the law considered as a whole, rather than a part of it. Considered as a whole. So, what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to me, is that the spirit and intention of God's law, considered as a whole, is love. That's his point. Which is more nuanced and actually more accurate than the way the New American Standard says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. I'm sorry, I think that's misleading, the way that's written. That's not... That's not Though it, though it literally is kind of a literalistic word-for-word translation uh, of the uh, of the Greek, it's not communicating uh, f- fully the underlying point there, uh, and therefore I think it's misleading. So he's again saying, the 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 spirit and intention of the law as the whole of a, as a whole is love. Okay, so that's the first reason why you should and I should, through love, serve one another, use our opportunity, our freedom. Uh, to love. And this is not some vague, ethereal sentiment, uh, some warmth that you feel inside of you when you see somebody. That's not what love is, fundamentally, scripturally. I think most of you know that. He's speaking about the kind of love that demonstrates itself uh, as per uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous and does not brag, is not arrogant. Uh, is not self. I'm, I'm, I'm getting mixed up here. I just realized I'm. I was. <laughs> let's let's read it. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what he's talking about. Love people that way, in those tangible ways, by being uh, patient with them, by being kind to them, by not being jealous of things that God has given to them, by not being braggadocious around them or thinking that you're better than they are, uh, by not by not acting in a uh, in an unbecoming manner uh, uh, around them, uh, childishly, for example, or uh, selfishly, by not seeking its own. That's that's the, there's selfishness right there. 
um, not being provoked by, by, by little things that they do that might otherwise annoy you, by not taking into account a wrong suffered. Say they've done something wrong to you, been, been, uh, made some snarky remark to you that was kind of hurtful. You forgive. You just forgive. Just go, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna take offense to that. That's the, these are the oper- this is the way we're supposed to love, you see. Not feel warm fuzzies. Although they might be there once in a while. Usually they're not. That's what you are to use your spiritual freedom, your, the fact that you are now a child of God, forgiven, pardoned, um, san- uh, a work of increasingly sanctified by God, adopted into God's family. That's what you're to use your royal privileges for, is to love, to show others the love that God has shown you uh, as much as you can do so in imitating him. So the question is, well, who's my neighbor who I'm to love? Love your neighbor, right, as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Jesus, of course, gave the definitive answer. I'm not going to bother to read it because of time. But you all know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, verses 29 and following. The neighbor there, but because of uh, the, the Samaritan, finds somebody he didn't even know. And he helps him. Even though there was a stigma attached to who that guy was, Actually, the stigma was, uh, the, stigma was the, uh, the, the helper, not the helped. At any rate, neighbor is clearly anyone and everyone who crosses your path, the path of your life, that's your neighbor. Particularly, I would say, because of the parable of the Good Samaritan, those who are in need. That's your neighbor. And from what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 30, uh, 43 and 44, that category of neighbor even includes your enemies. And mine. As Paul makes his point about the Christian's need to show love to his neighbor, he's assuming something, folks, that modern day Antinomians, I'll explain what that means in a minute, desperately need to take note of. An antinomian is anti against, namas means law. So those who are against the law, who are anti law, speaking of uh, biblical law. There's a lot of antinomianism in the modern evangelical church. And Paul here is assuming in his, in his reasoning, when he says, uh, through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is assuming there the ongoing applicability and validity of the Old Testament law. At least major portions of it. Not the ceremonial law, because the New Testament got rid of that, and the, ceremony, uh, the, the dietary laws, those were done away with. But, as a whole, the law is still in force, is, is Paul's very clear point to the New Testament believers in Galatia. Well past the time of the, the resurrection and the ascension. So this should serve as a wake-up call to any of us who are thinking to ourselves that somehow the Old Testament law doesn't apply to me as a New Testament believer. I hope there's nobody here that's thinking like that. You're wrong. The second reason uh, that you must uh, not use your spiritual freedom, or must use your spiritual freedom to love one another, not only is because of uh, what we just read there in verse 14, uh, uh, because you're fulfilling the whole law, or the spirit of the law as a whole, but secondly, because you don't choose, if you don't choose to use your spiritual freedom rightly, Unpleasant consequences will almost certainly result for you. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, essentially, what Paul seems to be saying is, if you don't take my exhortation to heart that you are to focus on loving others, what's going to happen to fill the void is biting and devouring of one another, um, being consumed by one another. If you don't 
positively obey God, something's going to fill the void and it's not going to be good in your life. Why is it important that we strive to fulfill God's law, especially the law of love uh, with respect to our fellow man? Well, and, and not just especially, and our law to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to fulfill this. It's important because the moral law is the standard by which the Christian is to conduct his life. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, summarizes that moral law has not been done away with. All ten of them still apply. And they are the summary of God's standard of uh, holiness, which is to say his, his character is moral, and we are to be holy as he himself is holy. That wasn't just an Old Testament principle that went away when Jesus rose from the dead. The law still is the, it is the way that you are to express your love for God by being a law keeper, and I the same. Obedience to the law is one of the foremost ways we show God we love him, and we are thankful that he saved us from the hell that we deserve. How are you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You are to love them, the text tells us, by serving them. Not just by giving them a hug, although that's helpful, by the way, sometimes. A well-placed hug can be really helpful for a lot of us. But thats it's not just that. Stop. <laughs> Getting a smirk here from Caleb. No. We are to be constantly on the lookout for opportunities to tangibly serve one another. Look. Look around you. There are needs around you even in this place right now. Look around you. For opportunities to serve someone, small ways and perhaps big ways. Examples of how you might serve one another, just by illustratively, offer to help those whom you know, either in this church or outside of the bounds of this church, Christians first, but also non-Christians, those who have physical limitations uh, that can't do certain things for themselves anymore or haven't been able to, yard work, uh, home repairs, things like that, Um, an elderly neighbor uh, that needs help in uh, in ways that you can provide but uh, that person can't for themselves. There's lots of ways we can help and serve others. Um, some of some one of the most important ways to serve by the way is a listening ear. Just listening to somebody. A lot of people just want to be heard. I have somebody that uh, not to, I'm not patting myself on the back by the way. But this just happened uh, somebody who I barely know um, asked, reached out to me, found me on LinkedIn, and reached out to me and said, would you help me? I, I've got major life problems. Would you help me? And uh, we spoke on the phone the other day because uh, I gave him my phone number and he called me. And I just talked to him for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And I got a text from him last night saying it was just so good to talk to somebody. And I didn't do anything. I just listened. But that's serving, you see. That's loving somebody who needs help. And a seemingly small thing. Cooking meals, taking people out to lunch, just being with people who, who are lonely, offering to babysit a mother who needs some time away from the kids, sending a card to encourage, all sorts of ways you can serve. But serve. Find a way to serve. And do it regularly. Don't just do it tomorrow because you heard this sermon and then forget to serve the week after that and the week after that. And the thing that can help and will help cause you um, to uh, be motivated to do this, to because serving doesn't come naturally to most of us. The way that you can be motivated and find the motivation to do that is just remember who has served you. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus now, by the way. Has served you indescribably as your substitute. He came to serve you. He did serve you. 
And you didn't, nor did I, deserve to be served the way we were served by him. And he just says, do what I did to you as best you can to somebody else. Serve others. Love others. Get your eyes off yourself. And you'll honor God. And you'll be happier that way. Not that that's the goal. But it's, it's a nice benefit. Having a meaningful and a, a life that where you sense is uh, a joy to live. Only God can give us the grace to do this, folks. Only God can give us the grace to not be self-absorbed. Because that's what we're naturally prone to. Let's pray for the grace right now to do that. Shall we? Pray with me. Lord, we are self uh, idolaters left to our own devices, Lord. Uh, and that principle of selfishness, of self-centeredness is still um, uh, central to who the old man is that's still within us. And we thank you, Lord, that he has lost the, lost the war, that uh, um, we are in the process of being transformed and the old man is increasingly being put to death by you working in us. We rejoice in that, Lord, but we need uh, we need help to make further progress in this, to be less self-centered, to be less concerned about our wants, our needs, our desires, and to be more concerned about others uh, and to love others and serve others. Would you help us to do this, please? Help us to find joy in serving others, to find... Um, uh, to, to, to find the motivation to do it in remembering uh, how much you have served us. And we pray that that would indeed motivate us to, to do things that aren't always easy, that aren't always convenient, that even cost us, but to do it because we love you and because we love others too, because you first loved us. And if there's anybody that's listening to me, Lord, that doesn't know Jesus savingly, that has never um, never understood that he is this individual's only hope of not going to hell for eternity, uh, would you please give such a one eyes to see Christ as that only hope? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.